Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 29. Psalm 29, that's where we'll be in our time this morning. If you're taking notes, the title of the message is Yahweh the Omnipotent God. Yahweh the Omnipotent God. And we'll be in Psalm 29. And we'll look at all 11 verses this morning. Well, throughout human history, there have been many powerful and devastating thunderstorms. Uh, The biggest one on record in terms of sound or thunder was in India on December 1st, 2014. It was the highest voltage thunder ever recorded at 1.3 billion volts or sound intensity. And just to give you a scale for what it would look like in a normal thunderstorm, normal thunderstorms hover around 100 million volts. This thunder hit 1.3 billion volts. Well, the largest lightning flash in in terms of length occurred on April 29, 2020, uh, here in the United States, actually. The complex spider-like discharge of lightning spanned a horizontal distance of 477 miles. Uh, That's the equivalent from right here to Memphis, Tennessee. The longest duration of a lightning flash. I I didn't even know they kept records of these things. But the longest duration of a lightning flash was 16.73 seconds. It's amazing. In 1996, in Australia, a cyclone produced winds that registered up to 253 miles per hour. Staggering numbers reflecting some of the most powerful storms that this world, that this globe has ever seen. Well, Psalm 29 describes a massive powerful storm. But it isn't just any storm. It is a storm that David describes to ultimately describe Yahweh and his omnipotence. Yahweh and his omnipotence. Omnipotence is an attribute of God which says that that God has all power in conjunction with his character. In other words, God has all power to do what's consistent with himself. So you've heard people say, well, can God make or create or build a rock that's too big for him to lift? Well, that's inconsistent with God's nature. So God's omnipotence tells us that he has all power to do anything that is consistent with himself. No psalm out of the 150 psalms, no psalm pictures the omnipotent God better than Psalm 29. In fact, uh, this storm not only describes the sheer power of Yahweh, but it shows that Yahweh controls the storm, he governs the storm, and therefore he oversees all of life. It's very much like Jesus of Nazareth in Mark chapter 4 when he commands the winds and the waves to be still. Peace, be still. The great 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon has said of Psalm 29 that this psalm 
marches to the tune of thunderbolts. Psalm 29 is Yahweh-centered. It's it's God-centered. In fact, over these 11 verses, King David uses the official name of God, Yahweh, 18 times. And this extreme repetition notes the fact that this psalm is Yahweh-centered. It's God-centric. And specifically that Yahweh is the only omnipotent God. In fact, Psalm 29 is so God-centric that David gives God a unique title that is only found in Psalm 29 and also in Acts 7. So only two times in Scripture we see this title that David gives Yahweh here, and that is the God of glory. So why does David pen this psalm? Why does he hone in on one particular attribute of God? Well, ultimately, it's to bring us to the throne of God. I mean, is that not what all of the psalms are about? The psalms are written in such a manner to take us vertical. The psalms are concerned about our horizontal interactions with the people of God, But primarily, the psalms are written to take us vertical. And the psalms do that in two ways. One of those ways would be praying the psalm. And then the second way would be singing the psalm. Psalm 29 is meant for that purpose, to be prayed and to be sung out loud. But there's a second component for why David writes this psalm. And it is to strengthen your faith to live for the glory of God. To strengthen your faith to live for the glory of God. So how does David accomplish this goal? How does he get this purpose across in these 11 verses? Well, Psalm 29 describes God's omnipotence over three spheres or three realms in order to motivate you to worship him, that's primary, but then to live your life for the glory of God. I think it's easy for us to admit when we come in on the Lord's Day on Sunday morning and the saints gather together, the brothers and sisters in Christ come to read the word, uh, to pray the word, to sing and hear the word taught, I think it's easy for us to grasp the reality that we are supposed to worship God or live for the glory of God. But it's every moment that we are outside of this building and in this room that we are called to live for God. Our entire being, our entire existence is for that purpose. So in these three spheres, we'll be able to comprehend that reality. And our Lord God, Yahweh God, the God of glory, will be able to strengthen us to do so. So let's look at sphere number one. Sphere number one, and that would be God's omnipotence over heaven. God's omnipotence over heaven. You follow along as I read verses one and two. 
Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. So David begins this psalm by taking his readers up to the heavenly courts to get a glimpse of the heavenly activity to which he is calling these angels to. Notice that he calls angels here sons of the mighty. Sons of the mighty. Uh, This is most likely a reference to angels, angelic beings, holy angels. We're familiar with texts like Job 1 and Job 2 where, where Job refers to the angels as sons of God. In Job 38, he not only refers to angels as morning stars, but he refers to them as sons of God. If you look through all the poetical literature or the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, you'll find that this is a very common title that the authors of Scripture use for angelic beings, the sons of God. Now notice what David is calling and commanding these angels to do. Three times, and you saw the repetition. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. Now we don't often use that word ascribe, do we? I think the only time I've come across that word in the last couple years is in a typo when I'm typing in scribe for my seminary papers. We don't often use the word ascribe to God glory or ascribe to the Lord. That word simply means to give. To give. David is calling upon the heavenly hosts to ascribe or to give glory to Yahweh. And you saw the repetition of Yahweh in those opening verses. Four times the name Yahweh was used. Worship must always be theocentric. That's what I love about Countryside. That's what I love about Northlake. The fact that the two pillars that we stand on, and they were mentioned earlier, are a high view of God and a high view of Scripture. It's those bookends, it's those guardrails that keep our worship God-centered. And that's what we see here in this psalm. David is commanding, by the way, imperatives. He's commanding the angels to worship God in this way. Now, how are they supposed to do that? That's the next question we must answer. How are the angels supposed to give God glory? What does that mean? Well, if you define God's glory, it basically can be said that God's glory is the summation of all of God's perfections or all of God's attributes. That's what makes up God's glory. You can think of it this way. When God says of himself in Exodus 3, when he says, I am, that's essentially telling us what God is. 
He is. All of God's attributes tell us his glory. It demonstrates his glory. Well, now you might be thinking, okay, if if God already is these things, then what does it mean for, for David to call upon the angels to ascribe something to God that he already is? I mean, if he's already full of glory, what does David mean when he tells the angels to ascribe God something that he's already full of? Well, the Hebrew word here has the idea of of heaviness, of of weightiness, uh, of substance. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, my wife and I got the wonderful idea that we were going to do some DIY projects in the backyard so we could have benches to sit on. It's funny how these projects always end up taking way more time and way more money than the actual just like buying the, the good, right? I'm the only one that's been there? Okay. So we went to Home Depot and we're, we're going to build these cinder block benches with these cedar posts that you can sit on that are super uncomfortable, we found out. So we, we, we borrowed my dad's truck and we loaded up 28 cinder blocks in the back of the truck and then I think a dozen or so cedar posts. Well, that truck was really sitting low to the ground by the time we had loaded up everything. The idea of God's glory isn't the weight on the truck, it's the substance of the cinder blocks and the cedar post, that which gives the bench actual value. If we're gonna make the bench out of cardboard box, it, it, it would have no value. So when we talk about ascribing God glory, we are to acknowledge the value that he has. We are to acknowledge the substance, the reality of who he is. Of course, we can't add or take away from his glory, but we're told here to ascribe God glory. When was the last time that you intentionally set aside time in your day to ascribe God glory? As I've been working my way back through this psalm, I've had to ask myself and examine my own heart in terms of that question. When have I truly set aside time to ascribe Yahweh God glory? In particular here, with his omnipotence. Glory to God for his omnipotence. Now, if you'll notice here at the end of verse 2, David sort of, he switches modes from that threefold repetition to then say, worship the Lord in holy array. This is another imperative. And this is stressing the fact that David is asking the angels to bow down and worship God. So in the first threefold repetition, uh, we are supposed to exalt and ascribe God glory with, with our words, with our heart. Here, David is commanding the angels 
to bring a, a physical element into their worship. Now, I know often we think about the charismatic and seeker-sensitive and the emotional-driven Christianity that's out there, and we sometimes have the tendency to go all the way to the opposite side in terms of our physicality in worship. But David is commanding the angels, the holy angels of God, to fix their physical posture, to do something physical, Bow down before God. When was the last time that you bowed down on your knees before Yahweh God, ascribing him glory for his omnipotence? Brothers and sisters, uh, let that be said of our worship, that, that it goes beyond lip service, that it goes beyond what we do in these walls for a few hours on the Lord's Day, but let that characterize our entire life like it does the holy angels. This is the chief function of holy angels. And brothers and sisters, I would submit to you this morning that our chief function as well is to glorify God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that very thing. What is the chief end of man? And it is what? To glorify God. So David is calling on the heavenly angels to bow down in worship. We see his omnipotence reigning over the heavenlies. But there's a second sphere or a second realm in which God puts his omnipotence on display. And it would be over the earth. God's omnipotence over the earth. You follow along as I start reading in verse 3. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. So what David describes in verses 3 through 9, is a mighty, violent thunderstorm that rises over the Mediterranean Sea and then breaks into full fury down the mountains of Lebanon and ultimately into the desert of Kadesh. Now, why a storm? It's interesting that in the middle of the Psalms, David intends to use a storm to describe the omnipotence of God. Well, I think there's a twofold purpose. One would be is that a storm is the most powerful natural event that we can see with the naked eye. Brothers and sisters, we understand this in Texas, do we not? Massive thunderstorms coming in from West Texas sweeping through the Metroplex. I think that's the idea here. But secondly, 
I think David pins this psalm because of the rampant Baal worship that plagued the ancient world. Baal was known as the fertility god and often used the title Lord and Prince of the Earth. But not only was he the fertility god, he was also known as the Canaanite weather god. And he was always associated with storms. And this came with titles such as the Lord of Rain or He Who Rides on the Clouds. Ancient writings describe those who worship Baal saying that he had, and this is key, that Baal had a holy voice. Now if you notice as we read through the description of that storm, seven times we are told that God's omnipotence is displayed in what? The voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord. You see Baal, he isn't controlling anything. In fact, it is Yahweh God and his voice that's controlling this entire storm. Look back at verse 3. Immediately, the voice of the Lord is interpreted as thunder. Job 37 verse 5 says that God thunders with his voice. You remember back to Exodus 19 when two million Israelites are at the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses and God start having a conversation and God speaks with a loud thunder. Early 20th century theologian A.W. Pink, he said, quote, God speaks but once, and the thunder of his power is heard on a thousand hills. It is Yahweh, the omnipotent God, who thunders. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, as our culture idolizes the bales of this world, and as our culture continues to spiral out of control, and as wicked sins mentioned in Romans 1 are platformed as good, and the idolatry of self becomes more and more rampant, and as persecution begins to hit the walls of the church, it is Yahweh God who is on his throne, and he still thunders. Don't think for one second that everything is out of control because it is in complete control under the sovereign hand of our omnipotent God. Look at verse 4. The voice of the Lord is powerful. It's majestic. This is telling us that God's power is strong. And his strength is according to who he is. You could survey everybody in this room this morning, and there are different capacities and different strengths. God's strength is to the max. Verse 5, we're told that God's omnipotent voice breaks cedar trees. The most grandest of trees, by the way, the cedars of Lebanon. 
Lebanon is known for their massive trees. Some cedar trees in Lebanon have been recorded of reaching up to 115 feet high. And listen to this, 46 feet wide at its trunk, at its base. Majestic and beautiful trees that Yahweh God has created. And David tells us that Yahweh God himself can absolutely obliterate those trees with a spoken word. In fact, you'll see this in your English translation of the Bible that the word breaks is used twice, but in Hebrew, there's a verb stem that switches that emphasizes the reality that not only can God break the tree and it can fall over, but that God can shatter the cedars of Lebanon, essentially making them explode into fragments on the spot. The most noble trees fall prostrate before Yahweh God. And not only the trees, but if you look at verse 6, we're told that Yahweh God makes the mountains skip. He makes the mountains skip. Mount Lebanon here reaches just over 10,000 feet. Mount Hermon here at the end of verse 6 reaches 10,000 feet. We're told here that God makes the mountains skip. My two and a half year old son, Luther, can skip and gallop all over the house now. It's pretty wild. God can do that with the largest mountains in the world, He, He can make them skip. Steve Lawson says that he can make uh, the mountains dance. And he would probably be yelling that from the pulpit if he said that, if you know Steve Lawson. Now the point is, is that mountains are absolutely nothing for the omnipotent God that we worship this morning. In fact, texts like Revelation 6, Revelation 16 tell us in the end, during the tribulation, that God himself is actually moving mountains out of the way, prepping the entire world for the millennial kingdom. You could essentially do a theology of mountains from Genesis to Revelation. God uses mountains to put his glory on display. And in fact, Zechariah 14 tells us that when Christ returns, where will he place his feet? On the Mount of Olives, and then what will happen? The Mount of Olives will be split in two. Mountains are nothing for God. He can move them when an instant. Well, look at verse 7. We're told here that the voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. Okay, lightning finally enters this storm. This is what David is describing here. Not only thunder, but lightning enters the storm. Lightning flashes truly are flames of fire that can ignite fields and buildings, homes, you name it, in a matter of seconds. Just check out the wildfires on the West Coast every year. Fire 
blazing from the heavens. And by the way, this word fire here is the same word used to describe the pillar of fire that the Israelites would follow in the wilderness. And it's the same word used in Genesis 19 to describe God raining fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah. The power of God is seen in the thunder and lightning. Look at verse 8. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. Notice the repetition here. Twice we're told that God shakes the wilderness. This means causing to tremble. The vast and silent plains tremble as this storm burst forth onto the desert scene. How many of you have experienced massive earthquakes before? Anybody here? We don't really get that in Texas, do we not? I remember actually one time many years ago, I was sitting on my couch at the house and the couch started to shake. I thought someone had snuck in the house and was shaking my couch. No one was there. It was like a mild earthquake. That's the most I have ever experienced. Here we have God shaking an entire desert in an instant. God's omnipotence and glory are on full display as he governs the storm. And notice how this storm concludes in verse 9. And in his temple, everything says glory. Glory. This is the climax of the psalm. David has taken us from the heavens and has worked us and moved us downward to the earthly realm. But at the same time, he's slowly been building steam until we get to this point in verse 9 where all of the heavenly host and all the inhabitants of the earth are exclaiming glory. Now there's a gigantic debate that exists over this verse, verse 9, and what temple is being discussed here. Some say it's a heavenly temple. Some say it's an earthly temple. In reality, there's no way of knowing. But, but I think the idea here is more comprehensive. And I think there may be an eschatological flavor to it, which is ultimately saying that in the end, both the heavenly host and the redeemed people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are gathered together before the throne of God to worship the omnipotent God. That's what David is calling us to do, to ascribe or give God glory. Well, we've seen God's omnipotence reign over heaven. Secondly, we saw that God's omnipotence reigns over the earth. The third and final sphere that we'll examine this morning is that God's omnipotence reigns over his people. God's omnipotence reigns over his people. You follow along as I read our final two verses this morning. The Lord Set as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people 
with peace. The most memorable storm at the time David penned this psalm would have been the flood. No storm has ever put God's omnipotence on display more than the Noahic flood recorded in the early chapters of Genesis. Not only was God's power seen in a storm that lasted 40 days and water covering the entire earth, but his power was also seen in his ability to save eight people. God's omnipotence reigns over the heavens, over the world, but even more particular over his people. If you look back in verse 1, David is told to ascribe God glory because of his strength. But if you look at verse 11, David is saying that Yahweh God gives that strength to his people. You see, that, that's sort of a bookend to the psalm. We ascribe God glory because of who he is. And in God's omnipotence and gracious character, he gives us strength for this life. Believer, God strengthens you. He upholds you. He sustains you. He preserves you. We could go from the front row to the back and everyone here could recall moments, many events in your past where Yahweh has strengthened you to make it through this life. Hebrew sentences normally begin with verbs. Here it begins with Yahweh emphasizing that this is a certain strength that can only come from God. You see, brothers and sisters, those of us who know Christ and are in Christ, we experience a strength that no one outside of the gospel can experience. The creator God of the universe is willing to be gracious and kind and extend his strength to us today. And not only does he give the believer strength, he also gives the believer peace. This is, this is the beautiful rainbow at the end of the storm. God graciously extend his peace to us. Contentment calmness, all of this taking place after this massive storm, God concludes by sending a rainbow of peace, if you will. This is both an outward and inward peace. Outward in the sense that your life is truly blessed in every sense of the biblical word. And inwardly, because in your heart of hearts, you know that you are in right standing with the one true God. You can have peace that your sins have been forgiven you and you are right with the omnipotent holy God of the universe. I have to ask you this morning, do you know this omnipotent God? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Have you come to terms with your own wickedness and your own sinfulness, your wretchedness and your sin that has defiled a holy God? If you continue in this state of unrepentant sin, either at your death or at the second coming of Christ, the thunderous wrath of the omnipotent God will crush you like he crushes cedar trees. And you will face the full fury of his wrath and judgment because of your refusal to turn from your sin and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you come to Christ today, acknowledging that you have sinned as high as the heavens, and that your only hope of salvation is in Jesus Christ, and you believe upon him and you put your faith in him, your sins that were like scarlet will be made white as snow. Not because of anything you have done, not even because of your confession, but because everything that the Lord Jesus Christ did on the six hours that he hung on the cross. He bore the thunderous wrath of God in his body. He gave his life a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. You will no longer be an enemy of God if you come to him, but you will have the Psalm 29 peace that can only be found in Jesus Christ. As we conclude our time this morning, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. As I mentioned at the beginning of the message, Psalm 29 records a unique and rare title for God, the God of glory. The only other place you find that title in the rest of scripture is Acts chapter 7, where I want us to end. Acts 7 is a familiar portion of scripture, and yet it's, it's often overlooked in terms of its connection with Psalm 29. Now you know that there were a group of conspirators that were recruiting false witnesses and spreading lies against Stephen in hopes of bringing charges of blasphemy against him, hoping that these charges would ultimately bring him to his death. Stephen is brought before the high priest, probably Caiaphas, same high priest that Jesus had stood before. And instead of dealing with these false charges, I love this, instead of dealing with the false charges, Stephen basically exposits the entire Old Testament and then gives one of the premier gospel presentations in the entire New Testament. But what I want you to see is that Stephen used Psalm 29 as a launching point. As a launching point 
for his gospel proclamation. Look at Acts 7, verse 2. And Stephen said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. The God of glory. As Stephen braced himself to share the gospel with the high priest of the land, he went back to Psalm 29 and rested in the fact that the omnipotent God would give him what? Strength. That the omnipotent God would give him strength to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the religious elites and the nation. And if you drop down to verse 59, you know and are familiar with how it ended for Stephen. Verse 59 tells us that he was stoned to death. But notice what happened right before he died, verse 55. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. He saw the glory of God. Not only was Stephen given strength in that situation, but he was given a peace that surpassed all understanding. And before he died, that God of glory, he saw. And the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. My brothers and sisters, one day we will stand before the omnipotent God and we will see his glory and we will stand face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ. But until that day, our worship extends beyond Sunday morning where we worship him with the rest of our life. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful that your word tells us so much about you. You are the omnipotent God. You are the God of glory. And it is your name that we exalt this morning. It is your son whom we praise and give our worship to. Let our worship be acceptable and honoring to you as we ascribe to you glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.